0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. Today is November 12th. And to all of our veterans out there, happy Veterans Day and a heartfelt thank you for all that you've done and given up for us. Um, I am thrilled today to have with us Mo Armstrong, who is the Director of Consumer and Family Affairs for Vincent, And he's soon to be the national uh, VA peer support person for the vet to vet program. Um, Mo is also a veteran of uh, the Vietnam War. Welcome, Mo.
2: Thanks a lot, Mary. Good to be here.
1: Um, I'd like to begin today maybe by just telling uh, the folks a little bit about what you do. Um,
2: okay.
1: I don't know. You do so many things. Whether you want to start with your <laughs> project or
2: your veteran. Well, vet I Well, I can start off with kind of where I came from. Maybe that's a good thing. Huh? And How I got into this was I have a major mental illness or psychiatric condition for a, 40 years I've had this. Also, I have what's called a co-occurring disorder. I was high and drunk and self-medicating, kind of treating myself for the mental illness through drugs, alcohol, and pills, anything I'd get my hands on for a long time. And so about 20 years ago, as I started to get more and more clean and sober and trying to get what I call sane, stable, safe, and sober, those four S's, Sane, stable, safe, and sober I realized that I couldn't really get enough care That I needed more care than I was getting And so I started to look for peer support Peer support for others and peer support also for myself Because the concept of peer support is it's mutual support I get something from it while I'm helping others Others are helping me while I'm working with them So that's what peer support would be Then about 10 years ago in Massachusetts, I started what's called the Peer Educators Project. Each one, reach one, teach one was the model of the Peer Educators Project. In the Peer Educators Project, we felt that carrying knowledge and information like the recovery workbook from Boston University or um, setting up um, MIA, Mental Illness Anonymous, and any of these materials that I talked to you about, Mary, these materials are absolutely free. We distribute those materials to anybody who wants them. We send them out electronically. And I might as well give you my electronic email now, M O E A one, M O E A one at Verizon, D E R I Z O N Verizon net. Now In Mental Illness Anonymous, it not only dealt with mental illness and substance abuse, but it also dealt with physical abuse and verbal abuse. And the only way I know how to get free from any of these abusive behaviors is by going and working with other people and having kind of a daily commitment or daily reaffirmation that we've got to stay clean and sober and free from all abusive behaviors. So six years ago, then, we started vet to vet and bet bet uses many of the same materials that we use in the peer Educators Project, which was used and still being used in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. However, in Bet2Bet, we also have disability pride, disability awareness. We also have a writer's group, and we also have a very strong sense of wellness um, support modules so that we got from Peggy Schwarbrick with the community service programs in uh, or collaborative support programs in New Jersey. So that's all being evaluated by Myrec, which is the educational and evaluation or research component of VA. So vet to vet is being researched by Myrec. Bob Rosenheck from Yale University is, and Sandy Resnick from Yale are two of the principal investigators, and they've been looking at peer support through the vet to vet model for about six years, and then they're having a paper. They're actually publishing two different papers, on what they have been discovering with the vet-to-vet the vet research.
1: So, in terms of the you you've talked a little bit about the peer support. How is peer support different from traditional treatment?
2: Well, traditional treatment I think has a very uh, formalistic and also has a very um, oh, clinical intervention. Peer support is just kind of more or less Nurturing, learning, nurturing, learning. It's just there for people. It's it's an ancillary service to the traditional clinic. So the clinicians come in, and let's say they might make a few suggestions. And um, let's say they might a med prescription or they might, let's say a person was going to some kind of dialectical behavioral therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy training module. Then the person would come back into the peer support stuff and do some follow-up with peers to kind of reinforce what they had been learning with the professional, and also spending a lot of time in the peer support. The way we do it is educational. So they're also learning about their own psychiatric condition, and they're also learning about their own mental health system, seeing that the mental health system is an opportunity, that the substance abuse care that they're getting, treatment that they're getting, is an opportunity and not a sentence. And that's what peer support does. It's a side-by-side service to the traditional treatment.
1: So it, it, within peer support, is that, is that kind of how people learn to deal with their symptoms? Because you've said you've been you've had this mental illness for 40 years, but you've been functioning. At, I mean, you've, you've had amazing achievements. You've got a couple master's degrees. Um, You've somehow learned to manage those symptoms.
2: Well, I I, I don't know if I manage the symptoms, but I don't get swept away by them. I think that's the difference, okay? And a lot of people, they get swept away by this. And I'll give you an example. I have found numerous people who have major mental illness, okay, who have interrupted sleep patterns. Um, I call it insomnia if you want, but interrupted sleep patterns. And instead of going back to bed, instead of resting, instead of regrouping that night and regenerating or renewing themselves, they kind of start to walk around pace, keep themselves awake, stay awake all night long, and get pretty trashed out the next day. Well, through peer support, everybody keeps encouraging the other person to rest, get extra rest, go back out the next day when we're rested, and then attempt to do things, not just go, go, go. You know, in America, a lot of times we think that going is a sign of wellness, and sometimes rest and relaxation are uh, the ways to wellness.
1: Well, and part of that whole self-soothing is what most people get from alcohol and drugs because we don't know how to self-soothe oftentimes. We are go, go, go. So. Um, learning how to self-soothe, whether you have the major mental illness or not, is difficult for a lot of people. And I think that's is. Is why a lot of folks end up overusing and misusing alcohol and drugs.
2: I think so, too. As a matter of fact, most people can't keep the pace of life they've chosen unless they do alcohol and drugs. Right.
1: Right. Um, in, in your, uh, you've written a manual it's called Mental Illness Anonymous, and um, you've written that through... Studies with Vincent and the Vet to Vet Community Center, right? And right. In it, one of the things that you um, you do talk about is um, a little bit about becoming kind of addicted to anger, right? And giving up anger. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that relates? Well, it's to uh,
2: being yeah, there? it's a strange situation that I that we all discovered because this was kind of a group process. I was working on the book. We found out that their people were. They were doing their best to get free from drugs and alcohol, but they sure didn't have their anger together. The next thing I knew, why people were all kind of angry at each other. And so, you know, working with people, trying to get them free from that anger, anger and power are highs. And anger and power are highs. And so, you know, there we are working with people, and yet we don't want to discuss, well, you know, to get really well, you've got to get free from anger and power or attempting to overpower people. And so, you know, so we just spent a lot of time realizing that that was also a problem. That Sure, people weren't using anymore. They weren't drunk. They weren't high, but they were still power-tripping other people. And to get completely free, that sane, stable, safe, and sober that I talked about earlier. I think a person really has to get free from that anger and verbal abuse and physical abuse.
1: You also say that conflict is the beginning of abuse and psychosis.
2: That's true. I do believe that. How, how
1: How does conflict relate to
2: psychosis? Well, I see that what happens is in the first steps that people start to really unravel, they start to get in all kinds of little arguments and disagreements and become kind of oppositional to the people that they're working with. First off, and this is a big challenge I think that we have in front of us, In, as Americans, okay? We have a mental health system, especially one like you have and one like other places that I'm working with, Vincent, for instance, and other places that have chosen the path, um, of psychiatric rehabilitation. These are very advanced models. These are people that are on our side. They're not against us, okay? They might want us to try to do things differently. They might see us ruining our lives or, Ruining the lives of people around us But people aren't really against us And so that oppositional thing which drifts into conflict Can start to be a sign of Yeah, we all have disagreements And yeah, we all want to do things differently But there's a difference between wanting to do things differently And having an ongoing conflict And staying in arguments with people Day in and day out Year in and year out in some cases so, you know, getting free from that drift into that that conflict, I think, is, is extremely important because what happens is, well, look, at, think about it like this, Mary. Many times you've probably like, you know, thought, oh, my God, this person, I can hardly believe I got treated like that, and now they're treating me this way, and I want a different relationship, and I'm out to get them because they treated me that way. And then you don't feel the same the next day. It's the same about mental illness, okay?
1: So why don't we pick that up on the other side of the commercial? We'll be right back. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, Mo.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org. Families into recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
0: If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order.
4: 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health.
0: Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One
1: Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Mo Armstrong. Mo um, and I have been discussing a little bit about conflict and how conflict seems to support psychosis, and I'd like to continue our discussion around how some people tend to stay in the role of the victim and don't seem to be able to kind of take um, responsibility, and maybe that's not the right word, but kind of... Be able to feel empowered to take control of their lives and
2: well I think, I think informed is is the way to go with this Mary and that that's okay. why I, I believed in this educational model you know where we each one reach one teach one because many times maybe not the first meeting or the second meeting or the third or fourth educational meeting but just planting seeds with people and eventually those seeds do take hold if we work on it. You know, you and I were talking before the show about the L.A. Times story, which just came out um, for the past two days, about the fellow from Kentucky who we went down and we worked with and we tried to rescue, and now he's back off again in America joining a gang. And for those people that want to read that story, they can, of course, go to the L.A.com, L.A.Times.com website and read that. In a way, that story is both a success and it's also a failure. However, the success was that we at least were able to talk to him. We were at least able to tell him, this is what you're experiencing with your mental illness. This is what you're going to be attracted to because you've got this also addiction pattern that's going out there. And basically, he knows that. If you remember in that webcast that the L.A. Times did on that particular story, He knows that people are trying to get him drunk and high as a form of celebration from coming back from the war. And he's worried about it, but he still can't seem to break free from it. So our job is to just keep working with people and coming back and working with them again and again. And now, you know, Mary, that's tough. I mean, you have to do this. This is not an easy job. We don't do miracles, you and I and other people in mental health we, we, we don't cure people. All we can do is just kind of teach them what's out there and let them kind of network and learn from each other how those early warning signs, how those triggers can be out there for them and how not to fall into the trap of following those triggers. And, you know, drifting into anger, drifting into conflict is a definite sign, I think, that somebody is getting triggered. And we need to have this discussion in mental health that this is part or part of the characteristic of a mental illness or psychiatric condition.
1: Um, you referenced the article in the L.A. Times, and that was about a uh, returning Iraqi veteran who was labeled the Marlboro Man. His face. He
2: was a Marlboro Man because he had been taken with a picture of that cigarette smoking yeah. after that battle of Fallujah. Right. We have been put through a lot of trauma because of the battle. He was trying to come to terms with himself, and he was having a very difficult time doing that. He was also having a very difficult time uh, staying still. I mean, he had a lot of, um, I would say, lack of impulse control. So anyway, well, it, I think that uh, that's a sign uh what we have to deal with in mental health, you know, that it's not easy. People don't realize that they're getting jumpy, that they're moving around. People don't realize that the life that they have is really affecting others in a negative way. I see that all the time. They they kind of are insular in their own way. That's another reason why I became a big believer in these educational support meetings so that people would go to those meetings in peer support and they would hear from others that they were kind of out of sync, out of synchronization with the world around them. And so I think that, uh, you know, again, all we can do is we can get people in there, they have that experience, and we have to be prepared that some of them are going to come and go several times with us, and our job is to work with them. And our job is to bring them back and spend time educationally, you know, like you were talking earlier about Mental Illness Anonymous is a book that people read. It's a book which we give away free to people so that they can actually understand their co-occurring disorder. Then they read the book, and then they have a discussion, and then they learn from others who are also reflecting on that book, where they're coming from with their particular diagnosis, and everybody's working together to try to get sane, stable, safe, and sober again.
1: Mo, in your um, certainly in your write-up, you you are a Vietnam veteran, and this this man that you're talking about from the LA Times. He was, it sounds like he was a very well-trained Marine. He was with the Marine Division that has been infamous throughout history of being um, good fighters and and showing up. And I'm just wondering, you know, is it is, is preparing somebody for what they're going to see in a firefight? Can, can you just not prepare people for that? I was very watching...
2: Mary, look, Mary. I have a com- I have a commanding colonel's mask, okay for being an instructor in the Marine Corps, encounter uncertainty. all right? I've got a copy of it, you know, public information, all right?
1: Uh-huh. In
2: the end, I was not prepared. In the end, I became mentally ill from combat. In the end, a guy who spent time training other people not to break, I broke myself. With this mental illness thing, there's no predicting factors, I don't think. Just some people get it, some people don't. It's basically a no-cause disease. It would be like saying, well, it's your fault you got malaria. You know, well, right. you know, maybe I shouldn't have been in the Panama Canal. Maybe I should have had more of a mosquito net around me. I mean, I could go around blaming myself for all the reasons I might have gotten malaria, right? But the fact is that malaria just happens to people who get malaria at times, no matter how much we want to prevent it. And so basically this fellow, you know, was as... You know, I I went back, if you read in the article, I went back to his hometown. Um, I saw the way he lived. I understood his life as a young kid. He probably had, looking back, I can see as a young kid, he probably had some attention deficit disorder. But he definitely didn't have what he's got today, which is a full-blown mental illness running around, you know, um, um, drunk and and really kind of in a lot of pain. Mental illness is painful, Mental illness is extremely painful. I mean, I have been ravaged by the mental illness for 40 years, so I can tell you right now, it's extremely painful. It is as painful as anything I've ever had. I don't know if you know this or not, Mary. I was six years old and I had polio, and I was in an iron lung, and I was able to rebuild myself back eventually to become an all-star football player and a um, recon marine myself uh, from polio. You know, build myself back physically. Mental illness, I've never been able to build myself back from. It's extremely devastating, and we don't know much about it. But what we do know is we do know how to get people to levels of recovery today, good levels of recovery. And people who are psych rehab practitioners are able to do this better than anybody else. So I think the cornerstone of that particular article for me, because I did work with a reporter on that article, was I kept trying to emphasize to the reporter that whenever that guy that young marine was in a program based on the principles and values of psychiatric rehabilitation he did pretty well the minute he went back into lone therapists you know um, people just trying to help him who had no idea what psych rehab was like how to do the vocational piece how to do the co-occur how to do the you know uh, treatment for people with co-occurring disorders Mary is, is extremely sophisticated and extremely sensitive and delicate. Um, You know, not everybody can do that. People haven't been trained in that, and even if they are trained in it, it takes them a while through immersion to get good at it. Um, He wasn't getting that. So when he was in programs where there was cognitive behavioral therapy and um, based on psych rehab values, he did well. And when he wasn't in those programs, he didn't do well
1: you know it's um, you're absolutely right. it's it's certainly more of an art at this point than a science to be able to work with people in a recovery model and in an integrated model. it's It takes time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of um, you know changing as a practitioner how you think and and work with people. And I think that you know dual disorders is kind of batted around right now. every treatment program says they you know, they, they have treatment for people with dual disorders, and it's been our experience at Westbridge that very few people really do provide true integrated um, treatment for people with co-occurring disorders. And so as a result, um, the individual kind of gets to be a ping-pong ball between one provider and another, and um, it doesn't really help people come, want to come back to treatment,
2: you know. So well, you're really blessed, Mary, because in your neighborhood up there, you know, the, um, uh, the, what's it called? The Psychiatric Rehab uh, the Research. Dermis, yeah, the Dartmouth The Dartmouth Psychiatric Drayton, Rehab guys. Center. Yeah. Yeah, and Kim Muser. Those guys, even though sometimes their stuff is a little hard to understand, because I have to, what I do is I teach the people in our programs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so my job, that's why Mental Health Anonymous was designed so it was at the simplest level so the people in our programs could grasp these concepts. But I'd give Kim Muser and Bob Drake and all those folks, Lindy Fox up there, a lot of credit, because they really push this. If people follow their model, and that book that they wrote, the Evidence-Based Practice um, uh-huh. um, in Mental Health, and just if you were to take that section on integrated treatment, now that's a, that's a section in that chapter that they have in that book, that Evidence-Based Practice in Mental Health, that uh Let me see. Bob Drake, Matt Nairns, and David Lindblum. If you were to just take that chapter on integrated treatment and implement that only, okay, the most simplest, easiest-to-understand thing I've ever written, uh, I've ever read, rather, on on integrated treatment for co-occurring disorders, people would be light years ahead of where they are today. People say they're doing it at the same time. They say they're doing it simultaneously, but they really aren't.
1: Well, that's true. Um, I, I couldn't agree <laughs> with you more. Um, one of the things that I've observed, and I'm not sure whether it's, um, whether it's valid or not, so I'm going to ask you, um, working with people that have major thought disorders, sometimes it almost seems like they're seduced by the um, psychosis or they're seduced by the delusions. And as we uh, get back from our break, maybe you could comment on that uh, okay. when we're done with our break. Right. And we'll be right back. Uh,
2: please
0: join Thanks, us. Mary. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org. Families into recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
0: For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any.
4: Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Mo Armstrong, and prior to going to break, I asked Mo um, to talk a little bit about uh, mental illness in terms of your psychosis, is there kind of a seductiveness to it that once you get into it, you you like to be there, it's an environment you can control. One of your, um, in Mental Illness Anonymous, it's, it's based on a 12-step model, and one of the steps is to admit that you're powerless over mental illness, so... Um, could you comment
2: on all that, Paul? Well, I think one of the things that people are famous for—human beings—we do what we're familiar with, okay. And if a person—that's why I say early interventions work. If a person's familiar, even though it's painful, and I've been psychotic myself, and you know, I'm been just completely stark raving mad, really. I'm, sometimes I don't even know how I got through it. I was so disoriented or delusional, and. You know, I got through it, but I got through it quickly. Now, some people don't get through it, and the longer they stay in it, the more familiar they are. You know, people do what they're familiar. People stay where they're familiar, and the familiarity, I think, breeds the comfortability, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to watch out for. You know, that's why this early intervention, like getting into a good program that can do the psych rehab type of intervention, bring people back into some kind of vocational thing while we're working with kind of managing or living with their um, symptoms or or with their um, levels of of conditions that they have in, in their lives. That's why that's so important, Mary, because if we do that, then people kind of have familiarity with other things other than psychosis. You see, and so I think that's where I see a lot. And we don't educate people. We don't say, okay, this is what we know today about schizophrenia, or, okay, this is what we know today about mood disorders, or, okay, this is how co-occurring disorders tie into schizophrenia or mood disorders. And we don't talk about that, and we don't also ask the people in the programs what are their experiences once we teach them this stuff. So the model, and I'm really... Promoting is more of an educational model. It's more of a one-room schoolhouse model than it is a traditional clinical model.
1: So, Mo, when when one of the steps is to admit we're powerless over mental illness, how does that help people in terms of recovery? Because they feel so overwhelmed by it to begin with.
2: Well, I can tell you right now, it means watch your step. I, I was dealing with this a little while ago, you know, where I was I, I was being taught the, the five, it was called the five stages of recovery. Yeah. And at the fifth stage of recovery, I was supposed to have shed my diagnosis. To be fully recovered, I will have shed my diagnosis. And I said, gee whiz, I'm finding out over my life that if I watch my diagnosis so I don't fall back into that trap and pitfall, that I used to get into all the time by not paying attention, again, we're back to those early warning signs, those triggers. Uh You know, if I start to watch that stuff, if I start to realize that this mental illness is kind of around me or with me at all times, and I'm like taking preventative steps so that I don't fall apart, so I don't drift into the conflict, so that I don't start to become psychotic, then I seem to be able to go on And I had a person disagree with me and they became very adamant. As a matter of fact, this was only a couple of weeks ago. They were a person who was in recovery and they said they felt that they had shed their diagnosis. And I said, Well the fact remains is that I as a person who is also in recovery doing it my way, I stay out of the hospitals and you know, you don't. So I mean, you might think you're totally recovered and you don't need to watch yourself at times and you can kind of take a laissez-faire attitude, but I found out that, and in continuing to find out, by self-monitoring and self-maintenance, I go a long way towards keeping myself stable.
1: Well, that really speaks to the biological component of both mental illness and addiction. They're chronic illnesses that um, can be monitored, can be um, managed. But they don't go away, like hypertension doesn't go away, and diabetes right. doesn't go away, asthma doesn't go away, but people can lead very healthy and productive lives if They learn how to manage those illnesses. And I, think I can have
2: diabetes, but I don't have to eat sugar, right? That's right.
1: That's right. And you can have a great life and still be diabetic.
2: Not eat sugar. Right. And I don't know what it is with mental illness, you know, that we drift towards the substance abuse, you know, we... People with mental illness really think we're going to get some relief from, you know, either getting drunk or high, and there's there's no relief from that. And so we have to continuously teach people, you know, look, you can have this condition, but you just don't have to get loaded. You don't have to get high. And, you know, 60% of people who have some kind of mental illness um, actually end up, like, with a co-occurring disorder. And on top of that, with the veterans, it's running in the high 90s. They, um, veterans, other veterans, and I was once like that myself, really are into some kind of substance abuse. I mean, look at the high level of homelessness, you know, uh, out there today among veterans. They just, the new report is out. It says 25% of all people who are homeless, um, are veterans. Well, I can tell you right now, when I was homeless, when I was on the streets the most, was when I was using the most. And when I was out on the streets the most, I thought that nothing was wrong with me. I was a cool dude who was just misunderstood. Get out of my space, leave me alone, and let me groove on life. You see what I mean? Yep. And I failed miserably and put people through a lot of pain and sorrow and grief because my own inability to really understand what I had and then live in some of those parameters. And you know, we talk a lot about living out of the box, but sometimes, Mary, we also have to learn in, learn to live in the box. You know what I mean, Mary?
1: I think I do, but why don't you say a little bit more? Well, that? in
2: the box means that I've got some things that I can't do. You know what I mean? Like I've got to get a good night's rest. I can't get drunk. I can't get high. Oh, I've got to stay completely clean and sober. Um, you know, I can't get in all kinds of conflict with people. I can't go around, you know, like uh, waking up at 2 in the morning and, and starting to wander around the neighborhood and go down to that corner convenience store and tell a guy that I'm a little shaky tonight because of my schizophrenia and what does he think about it. You know what I mean? I've yep. got to learn to contain it a little bit. It's not going to go away, but I don't have to just let it explode out and let it sweep me away and I get swept away with it.
1: How do you learn to do that, Mo? I see so many people that struggle, that that do get swept away
2: with it. Ongoing okay. educational support meetings. Okay. And the peers have to commit to it ourselves. You know, there's not enough staff people to get us things stable, safe, and sober. I myself could wear out five staff people in an afternoon. Uh-huh. So, you know, what we have to do is we have to set up these ongoing educational peer support meetings, which meet continuously two to three times a day with this recovery learning center that we just set up with Lisa Alpert in Boston for instance she's got three to four meetings a day peer meetings a day which are which are voluntarily attended by people she started off with zero now she's up to 15, 20, so maybe 25 people per meeting Okay, with the vet to vet programs I was just in Los Angeles he had he was at 800 people a month attending peer support at one site in Los Angeles, Greater Los Angeles Veterans Hospital. Now because the domiciliary uh, where they have the homeless uh, folks are not uh, participating in the vet-to-vet model, so now he's down to 600 people a month. That's the kind of people that he's got attending these ongoing educational support meetings. When we start to get that kind of people and get that uh, that level, that number of people attending, and we get that level of buzz happening Why changes happen. I always say we can be mentally ill, but we don't have to act crazy. We still need a system that's there for us, that can help open doors, that can get us services, that can plan for services, link us to those services, keep us in those services. But right now we've got a system that's based on who's ever in crisis. We run around after them and make them feel good and then we pick up the next person in crisis. And, you know, it's not really the best operationalized community service system that we could build. It's still a crisis system in the community.
1: You're absolutely right. And that's the highest cost for resources are when people are in crisis. Um, Prevention and
2: support are much more cost effective. Much more cost effective. And I think with the amount of people out there, need some kind of care because they have a psychiatric condition, you know, that that we're going to be working with people until you and I are long gone off the planet, Mary. I mean, and the problem also is that people don't get services when they want them, when they need them, and it's not on demand. And so what happens is that many times people are unraveling, and they make that call for help, and nobody responds. And then by the time they finally get help, you know, they're ready for the state hospital almost. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, I do. So we
2: don't have a responsive um, way to get the people who are out there looking for our help either.
1: Well, how do people find out where Mental Illness Anonymous meetings occur? Is there a website or someplace?
2: Uh, They're saying, well, I think, yeah, we have the veteranrecovery.org website. But people can basically, if they want, they can always call me. I take all kinds of numbers. I talk to people all across the country. My number is 203-623-0731, 203 623 they just published my number in that L.A. Times article, so um, again, it's, uh, um, I'm waiting to hear from that. All, all of our materials are free. We give you a handbook on how to set up support meetings. We give you middle synonymous, and we give you the Hip Pocket Recovery Workbook. And also what I like a lot, and we're trying to prepare people for this inevitable future, is we give you a reduced version of the book Uh, Bob Drake and Debbie Becker wrote Working Life so we give you a simplified version of that so you can also read that book in in your support meetings we try to encourage people to read about mental health programs not just about mental illness so that people are understanding what they can expect from the mental health system what they have to learn to ask for from the mental health system and most people today have never been taught about supported employment and that should be part of the overall mental health system. Work and vocation and vocational um, opportunities should be part of the mental health system.
1: Um, work is an important part of recovery for, for everyone, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, on the other side of our break. Uh, we'll see you in a minute. Thank you.
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism, spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope.
0: Your life, your health, your network.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome back to One Hour Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Mo Armstrong, and we've been talking about um, co-occurring disorders. We've been talking about PTSD and veterans' issues, and we were just beginning to talk about supported employment and how important it is for people in recovery from mental illness or addiction or dual disorders, how important work is uh, to people's well-being and uh, mental health. And Well, do you want to just talk a little bit, what is supported employment and how does that differ from traditional uh, employment vocational programs in
2: mental health? Well, first off, the supported employment is supported. So if a person wants, or is supportive, so if a person wants to go out and get a job on their own, they can do that all by themselves, okay? But they've got this employment specialist who's kind of bumping along with them, trying to make sure that they're integrating into the workplace, even myself, Mary, with all these darn degrees that I've got, I can tell you right now that there was a big difference between Mo Armstrong street person and Mo Armstrong working in mental health. And so I also needed more support than I got, and that's another reason why I became more and more interested over time in supported employment, and saw it was kind of the missing part of my life. I think over and over again that even today, I still need some kind of employment specialist working with me to help me understand how to better integrate into the workplace, even today after some almost 20 years of working in the mental health system. And also, you know, we have a lot of people out there who are moving towards wanting to work in the mental health system as peer support technicians or they want to be peer specialists. And I think anybody who has a major psychiatric condition would benefit from having an employment specialist, even if that employment specialist was, in some cases, a fellow peer. Because working in the mental health system also requires a set of skills that um, requires a certain kind of level of socialization and a certain level that I don't necessarily have myself, Mary. I mean, I was back in Berkeley, California, about four weeks ago, six weeks ago, and people from the streets that I knew in Berkeley then are still out on the streets, and it reminded me, you know of, yeah, sure, I'm able now to integrate more and more and better and better into another environment. But for a long time, I, I was almost you know with that trapped again. I was, I was comfortable, right? I, I, I was familiar with the streets, therefore I was comfortable about being in the streets. Therefore, I didn't leave the streets. You see, that's Mm -hmm. remember how we talked about that earlier? Yep. That level of, of familiarity, and then that becomes comfortable, and next thing you know, I'm stuck there forever. It's the same thing with living on the streets. And so, anyway, I think it takes somebody working with, me and others to kind of help us integrate better into the overall workplace and some of those workplaces are going to be the mental health system as a whole just because I'm a person with a major mental illness and working in the mental health system doesn't mean that I've got the answer to everything Just it doesn't mean that whatever I do is okay and I have to be accepted by the people around me it means that also I need some Let's say for lack of a better word some sanding. you know, I've got some rough edges in other words. And so an employment specialist helps with all that. And we just think that once a person gets to a certain level, they don't need any help. They don't need any help anymore, therefore they don't they don't need us. They don't need our programs, they don't need employment specialists. they don't need to see ongoing peer support anymore. They're graduated. I hear this all the time. I hear this from mental health professionals. Also, I hear this from other peers. I hear this from other people who have mental health conditions. They, they think that they've outgrown this. Where, where I seem to succeed is I think that I need some kind of bumping along, educational, ongoing educational support all my life, the rest of my life, and I'm willing to set up these meetings and attend them. I would say of these 40 sites now that I have across the United States, Mary, with the VA, I'm just an attendee now. I enjoy just attending the meetings and being just another person attending the meeting with other people because I'm working to get myself sane, stable, safe, and sober, just like I was working with other people to teach them how to get sane, stable, safe, and sober. Now I'm kind of renewing myself consistently all across the country. So I think that's what we have to look at, that, um, you know, employment is not only an option, you know, but I think how are we going to integrate peer support people into the mental health system? I think that's going to be the biggest source of employment that we're going to have coming down the road in mental health. There will be more and more people like me hired and working in mental health in the future, and that's going to also require some kind of, I think, Um, employment specialists, to work with them or us also. And I just want to caution people, though, that when we hire people, and this is the hardest thing that I've encountered, two things. One is when I started to work in mental health myself as a peer person, I had to move from being helped to being the helper. And that's a whole transition in itself, okay? That's leaves me in a certain area where I'm continuously strengthening myself, but also I have to want to strengthen myself, and I'm in it for strengthening myself. I'm not in it to find... There are people who I encounter who find what's wrong with the system. I need to find out what's wrong with me. It would be safe to say that mental health as a whole is in a giant transition today, and that transition you know, requires a lot of patience. Mental health, many people who work in mental health, they were not taught psych rehab practices. Many people who work in mental health had no idea what co-occurring disorders are or integrated treatment of people with co-occurring disorders. Our job, those of us that have these mental illnesses, those of us that have these co-occurring disorders, is to work side-by-side with people in a collaborative way to make system improvement. And that's what seems to be the challenge also today. People like to kind of, you know, it's like they like to get to a certain point and then they like to tell people what to do. And one of the mottos, really, of our peer support stuff was vet-to-vet. It's gladly teach, right? Uh-huh. But it's also gladly learn because we also need to learn from people at work in mental health what they've been learning the whole time just because we're in there now over the past 5 or 10 or 15, 20 years doesn't mean that we know everything. So we need to learn and not only teach. And so these are challenges, I think, that the peer workers of the future are going to have. But I do think peers working in mental health is going to be probably one of the biggest substantial changes to, to come down the pike in the, in the mental health world
1: well I, I totally agree with you when I first started working in this profession, I worked with, I'm a nurse, but I worked in a detox unit in kenmore square and so um, i have I have a lot of experience working um, in the addiction field, and you know people that's part of the culture of addiction treatment. People get in recovery, they decide this is what they want to do, so a lot of my coworkers were not only social workers and counselors and nurses and residential workers, they were also people in recovery. So it was very much a consumer-involved environment. And then when I started to work in the mental health system, it was the exact opposite. I can remember the um, the agency that I worked in, um, one of the uh, administrators calling me aside and said, you know, in addiction you used to have like consumers at your house because you'd work with them. Well what's that like? You know, like if you have a party and you've got a consumer at your house, what is that like? And um unfortunately we're getting toward the end of our show Mo, so you wanna just quickly wrap up with
2: Well I'll tell you right now what it'll be like, Mary. It'll be this weird amalgamation of people in recovery working together with people who aren't in recovery and all of us working for the betterment of the next people, the next generation of people who are in our programs. The people in our programs are going to be the next generation of workers and uh, people who participate more and more in their own mental health programs.
1: Mo, thank you so much. This has been a great hour and as usual. We we never have enough time when it's time to talk. If people are looking for help, Um, Mo's number is 203-623-0731. Um, any veterans out there, if you're struggling, give them all a call. And uh, happy Veterans Day
2: to everybody. Thank you, Mary.